Hello and welcome back to Palpable Discord, the Chelsea podcast. Today is a transfer special. We'll be talking through Chelsea's business this summer. Who can forget over £200 million spent? We'll look at their business against their rivals. And we'll also take a deep dive into one of the key signings in Edouard Mendy. Just how good is he? How important will he be to Frank Lampard? We've spoken to John Harrison in a special interview to analyse him as a goalkeeper and also reveal some statistics that you should be following throughout the season to assess goalkeepers. But first of all, we're going to look at the next game, Southampton. It's been a while during the international break, of course. But Grant, starting with uh, the game this weekend at Stamford Bridge against Saints, how important is it to carry over that momentum from the Crystal Palace win and, and pick up a win ahead of uh, a pretty tricky run of games for Chelsea? Yeah, I think it's a massive game, a must-win game at home. Um, Southampton have been a lot better in their last two games. Um, they changed their back line a little bit um, after that, that Spurs humiliation and um, Jack Stevens came out and they've gone to you know two more physical central defenders with... Um, Vestergaard and Bednarek, and they've yeah they've they've done pretty well since then. They've kept um, a couple of clean sheets against Burnley and and West Brom. Um, Arsenal Neutral did say before the the Burnley game that he picked the two of them to deal with that spe- actual uh, specific test that they would pose to his side. Um, so if he does keep those two again, I think there's maybe a lack of pace at at the back for us to possibly exploit. Um, so. Yeah, I'm quite excited for the game. I think we can get the three points. Um, I'm a bit concerned about some of our some of our injury news. Obviously, with Mendy, um, we're hoping he'll be fit after he had to withdraw from the Senegal squad. So that's quite a big one. Um, obviously, Ben Chilwell's also going to be doubt for this game. So that's that's quite a big blow after they both made their Premier League full well, their full Premier League debuts in the last match. We just can't kind of get that momentum going in our selections and have a few games in a row with the same side. So. Um, yeah, it's a big game to win. Uh, it's a must-win game, I'd say, yeah. Well, um, what did you see in the, the Palace win and the, the performance that Lampard will need to sort of emphasise over the next coming days when the players come back from international duty to, to pick up where they left off almost? Because there is a danger that with a couple of bigger games on paper on the horizon that they could overlook Southampton a little bit and failure to win here, it, it almost sort of the good work before the break to sort of uh, pick up some momentum, it, it might unravel. Yeah, I think we were sometimes a bit guilty last season of um, off the back of a good win. We, we, uh, we'd get a bit complacent and, and, and slip up. I think there was a couple of games last season, Southampton at home being one, actually. I think we played them on Boxing Day after... Maybe after Arsenal, I think, and uh, and obviously we we lost that game. Uh, Spurs actually, yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's uh, it's frustrating. We had the we had the international break because I thought Palace uh, there was lots of positive signs and it looked like uh, Frank had finally sort of found a little bit of more of a balance. Um, we we looked a lot more comfortable in dealing with teams. 
um, uh, against Palace uh, playing in transition. We contained them pretty well and they, they didn't really create anything. Um, and, and we sort of saw the Aspilicueta play a little bit more withdrawn, conservative role. Um, Chilwell playing nice and high. So um, it's frustrating that we seem to have picked up a couple of injuries, but that always seems to be the case when you go on a long international break like this. And yeah, it's, it's just frustrating. I think obviously we, we welcoming back, um, well, definitely Pulisic, probably Ziek as well. Maybe Ziek more from the bench. Maybe Pulisic can even start this game. Um, but then we've potentially lost Chilwell and potentially the goalkeeper. But we still have to wait on news for that, I suppose. Um, they could all be fit. Um, but it'll be interesting now. Frank's got even more options. So uh, it'll be interesting to see exactly what the front line looks like in the next few games. I think there's obviously going to be room for rotation as we've got uh, three games in, in a week. So uh, I think we'll have the opportunity to, to take a look at quite a few players and a few different options to try and get the pattern right and get the balance right um, in the final third of the pitch. It looks like we, we might have hopefully um, stumbled across something that, that kind of works with the back four uh, with one fullback playing more withdrawn. Um and yeah, I, I guess I guess we'll see, but um, hopefully we can sort of yeah not not see that complacency which we saw at times last season. Yeah, I think there's um, there's some positives despite the momentum sort of being being uh, stemmed a little bit by the break in the in the sense that a few players have, have picked up some form for their countries. I think you look at Havertz for Germany. I think uh, that that's certainly a positive. I think uh, also Mason Mount has has uh, shown some really good stuff with England. I think Southgate has has picked him out uh, unsurprisingly again. Uh, obviously, he scored the winner against Belgium, which will do his confidence a lot of good. I think um, elsewhere you, you you look at Chilwell's in failure to play. I think it almost hurts him a little bit because he was he was getting up some some real momentum and match fitness. So hopefully that hasn't affected him too much but I think you're, you're right about the, the balance there now if he is to play then um, Aspel Equator on the right side um, definitely uh, counterbalances that really nicely and you mentioned Mendy which would be a blow but um, I think Kepper obviously has um, somehow managed to uh, psychologically um, sort of correct himself a little bit at least in on the face of it in the media so um, I think yeah he, he, he may even be um, confident of coming in almost prematurely um, since, since being dropped. So in that sense, um, I think the group is, is pretty, pretty well set. And you, you look at there's, there's going to be a few players that, that didn't even go on international breaks. So Lampard has that luxury to almost work um, prematurely with a few of them. You saw Jorginho, almost um, a couple of viral clips of him in the Italy squad um, singing Oasis on the guitar. So I wonder whether we've almost under, underrated his, um, his role in the in the squad as a, a bit of a character. I think we, we've sort of looked at that team um, over the last year, but it does almost, it lacks those, those big voices. And maybe maybe in that sense, you've got somebody who can can sort of relax the mood and amongst a pretty timid bunch. But um, yeah, it's going to be an important game. Um, Grant, what, what, do you, what do you consider to be the main concern? Obviously, Saints um, possess some, some pretty... Um, some pretty good players. I think Danny Ings obviously carried over last season's form. Is there anybody in, in particular that you think could possibly expose Chelsea? I think um, Gineppe obviously is, a, is, is, is another who's 
obviously got wonderful ability but yeah who who are you looking out for to to maybe keep quiet because um palace obviously had that that amazing counter-attacking threat and zaha among others were were kept quiet so i think lampard is sort of got to build up a bit of a, a backlog of um evidence that he can adjust and use tactics to suppress the the opposition as well as um focus on the the unbelievable talent he has now at his disposal yeah i think we touched on the game last season we came off the spurs game and Lampard stuck with the same back three shape, but we had a couple of guys unavailable. Um, Alonso was out, so we had Emerson playing as a wing back. Um, I think Mount was dropped onto the bench. Um, Hudson Odoi played, and then at half time, he had to actually take Zoom off and go to, to back four. Um, but I do think playing the lopsided defense that we had against Palace would make sense if we're facing a front two, most likely with Shea Adams and Danny Ings up top. Um, obviously, if Chaw was out, then you, you could possibly have Aspiliqueta playing as the sort of a stay-at-home left-back with Rhys James, you know, bombing on from right-back. But that obviously that doesn't give you the, the main benefit of actually having Thiago Silva being protected slightly, um, which Aspilicueta does when he's to his right. Uh, I just can't see Lampard bringing Alonso or Emerson back into the picture for this game if Chua's out. Um, and on that side for Southampton, um, it looks like Armstrong is out with, um, with some... I think he tested positive for COVID, so um, they might have Gineppo and, um, and um, Redmond on the flanks, or we could see a debut for Theo Walcott, possibly. So they've got print, you know, plenty of speed. Um, they, I mean, Danny Ings is the biggest threat. I mean, his form has been crazy since the beginning of last season. I think what was it, 21 non-penalty goals last season in the Premier League? More than, more than Jamie Vardy got, um, we take out penalties. So... It's quite remarkable how he started this season as well, scoring for England in this international break. Uh, so he's the biggest threat. Um, I think the midfield can be got at, though, with um, Neuberg uh, departing and Romeo's been playing in his, uh, in his place um, in the first few games. Obviously, they did sign a, they did sign a new midfielder, um, who was uh, Ibrahim Diallo. So I think Romeo's lack of mobility, we can maybe expose a bit uh, with Havertz there. Um, I'm interested to see if we stick with the same midfield with Kante and Jorginho playing together. Uh, obviously, we've played that twice this season and won both games, the Brighton and the, the Palace games. Yeah, so it's an interesting one. Um, I would be quite inclined, as well said as well, to, to start Pulisic. He's, um, I think, I think Werner's been struggling on that left flank um, with very obvious telltale signs of a player settling into a new league. And I think possibly going with Pulisic on the left and then Werner as the front man against slower defenders could be a decent option for this week. Um, Southampton are, they don't really sit in a low block, so I think there will be some space to exploit. Um, having said that, I wouldn't be too disappointed with Werner coming on as a sub for the final 30 minutes if, we, if we're leading and doing similar to what Spurs did with Son, just running onto balls in behind constantly. And obviously Werner has been, been sick this week with Germany, so it's, it's not possibly the worst time to do that. And then obviously, Werner, you will definitely play in the Champions League, uh, which is more accustomed to, you know, and certain, in terms of the pace of the game and the physicality. So I'm quite interested to see how we set up. Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, given that Mason Mount almost certainly is going to start against Denmark for England, and he obviously started against Belgium, came off a bench, um, uh, in the, in the game before as well. So I think you're going to look at maybe Lampard saving him for Seville, Sevilla on um, on Tuesday. And then you obviously got Man United 
following week and then Krasnodar midweek again. So I think it's a perfect opportunity to bring in Pulisic for for Mount or even Werner, like you said. And I think it's interesting that Ziyech prematurely came back from his international duty as well. So I mean, it feels like he probably would come in from a bench. It might be a bit much to expect him to start immediately. But depending on how Lampard considers hudson Adoy's recent impact, I think that's definitely almost more of a priority that there's, a, there's another option there on that right. Because hudson if hudson Adoy is not quite adjusting to the game plan and then obviously Mason Mount is slightly out of position, I think you really do need to to see something from Ziyech and especially with um, with Aspel Equator playing that sort of counterweight role from right back. So yeah, I think that'll be really interesting to see how it's set up. And anything else you want to want to add, Will, on, on this game? Um obviously um haven't quite heard from Lampard yet, but yeah, anything you want to raise? Uh no yeah I think you both make good points. I think uh It'll be interesting to see how Thiago Silva copes with with a front two like Ings and um, uh, Che Adams. Obviously, lots of runs into the channels, lots of threat in behind, both physical, both quick. Um, so I think it's in, if we can, I think it's important if we can keep the same shape and have Aspie kind of sort of protecting him a little bit. Um, it'll be interesting because I think this this could be um, this could be a, quite a decent game for Kovacic. I think. I think if they do like to 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 press quite high up in in uh, in waves, Southampton, it's kind of a a part of Haston Hootel's sort of uh, style of play, and I think that's when Kovacic is actually his best when he doesn't have too much time on the ball and he's kind of pressed and improvises and and we know how good he is um, finding those kind of mismatches through the middle against kind of slower players on the turn, defensive midfielders like Romeo and, and Ward Prowse. So. Could be quite a good game for him to come in potentially, um, but obviously Jorginho did well in the last game. But it, it could be Jorginho comes in uh, for the Sevilla game. I think uh, I think it will probably be um, Pulisic, Tammy, and and Callum, and obviously have it playing again. I can see I could potentially see the front three completely changing for the Sevilla game, uh, changing every player, um, and potentially. Mount coming in, um, uh, Werner coming in up front, and even ZX starting against Sevilla if he if he comes on and gets a good twenty minutes, half an hour uh, in the week. Um, so it's interesting. We've got all these options. I think we're all kind of worrying a little bit about um, building the identity of the front line and things like that. But I think in the next few weeks, it's it's going to be a big advantage having all of this depth um, and and the possibility to rotate players in, in the four positions without losing. Um, a lot of quality so that, that's going to be good I, I just hope we see a little bit more stability at the back and not too much chopping and changing in the centre-backs um, and, and hopefully Chilwell can stay fit and can get a run of games um, and we can see a little bit uh, of the start the start of a kind of um, good foundations and then you know if, if we if we're able to rotate in the four positions I don't think that's that's a bad thing it keeps everyone happy and um, keeps everyone fresh so yeah yeah, I think it's, it's going to be an interesting game. I think you can tell from all of our thoughts that there's quite a lot of respect for Southampton, how they play, the uh, the threat they pose. I think you mentioned Grant about Walcott. I think that could be a tremendous signing. And if you mix in him with Gineppo around Ings as well, I think that's a, it's a pretty potent front three. And 
uh, yeah, look, I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing how how Chelsea get on against them and, and whether they can mask some of their deficiencies in in midfield without Hoiberg, um, and Chelsea can raise it in that game. But to move um, swiftly on um, to the transfer market, and now that the the window has closed for um, for international buyers as such in England, um, still the possibility that you can purchase from EFL clubs. But I think it would be a good good place to start is to just assess exactly um, how we consider these um, these signings that have come through the door at Stamford Bridge. Um, I'll, I'll rattle them off straight away just to, for a bit of background, but we, we've seen Kai Havertz come in for 72 million from Bayer Leverkusen, Timo Werner, 47 or 48 million from uh, RB Leipzig, Ben Chilwell, 45 in and around that mark, um, for 45 million from Leicester, Hakim Ziyech, 36 million from Ajax, Eduard Mendy, 22 million from Stadaren, uh, Malang Saar, free transfer from Nice, Thiago Silva, free transfer from PSG. Um, those figures are from transfer marks. Um, obviously, some of them are going to vary, but in and around that ballpark, I thought we'd start off with um, just, a, just a brief um, rating from all of us on those signings. Um, if you want to kick us off, uh, Grant, um, just a, an out of 10 on, on those, that collection of signings, um, how you rate them as, a, as, a, as an incoming. I think we can probably go about a nine for the window. Um, I think we've discussed a lot that getting that genuine defensive midfielder would have been ideal. And I think we've also agreed that trying to get a top centre-back in this particular, particular summer was probably not the right one just because there weren't any actually... Uh, jumping out and available and that's probably something to address in a year's time so I'd say close to perfect um, I saw someone say this week that Spurs you know had the best transfer window in the country which is quite bizarre when you just look at their their uh, signings compared to ours actually quite a few similar positions like both teams got a left back for example and both teams got a center forward um, and a wide a left-footed wide player and it's just um, I was just quite surprised I, I have to say I think this this window certainly is the best across the Premier League. Um, I think you could probably put Aston Villa just because they got exactly what they needed as comparable. But in terms of the, the top six or seven, or at least the teams who could be pushing for Champions League spots, um, I think it's definitely the best transfer window in the Premier League. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think uh, I'd give it a nine out of 10 as well. I think it's, it's pretty hard to beat. I think it's it's almost unheard of to see See Chelsea quite quite so comprehensive in the in the transfer market, uh, addressing so many positions, and and obviously um, we can we can touch on the outgoings as well. A couple of significant ones uh, that we've seen, obviously Willian leaving on a free, um, and likewise Pedro, which wasn't ideal. And then you saw Loftus Cheek join Fulham on loan, Ross Barkley join Fulham on loan, Malang Sarr straight out the door on loan to Porto. Um, Zappa Costa to Genoa, uh, among among others, Bakayoko on, on loan to Napoli, a, a late one that was probably a um, strange one, really, because it ended up looking a bit thin there in the end when we, we saw Loftus-Cheek and Barkley leave on, on loan too. But I think it, it's a good a good spot for him to kind of salvage his value under Gattuso, who he played his best football, his career outside of Monaco at AC Milan a couple of seasons ago. Uh, Will, yeah, would you agree 9 out of 10 for, for this window? Yeah, uh, 9 out of 10 seems to be the, 
but I've seen a lot of people kind of rate it, so I, I won't change course. Uh, yeah, I think it's been a great summer. We've addressed the vast majority of the areas that we that we needed to address, um, and yeah, I think that we, there's still probably one or two positions. I think we 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 wanted to bring in another uh, defensive slash central midfielder. I think there was no secret that we wanted Rice, but it was just a case of. I think for that deal to happen, we had to we had to bring in some some money from selling players, and and we weren't able to do that. Um, and I, we weren't alone in that. I think that there, there just wasn't a big market for players. I think spending was massively down across Europe. Um, it was it was down slightly in the Premier League, but it was, it was hugely down in the other countries. There just wasn't a market to move these players on. Um, I think that would probably be the only uh, negative to the to the windows that we weren't able to move some players on and then the squad's a little bit bloated in areas, three left backs, five centre backs. Um, but if you look at some of the other squads, I mean, Man United have got six centre backs on their books and Arsenal have eight centre backs in their squad. So, you know, I think it's, it's just, uh, you know, in normal times, I think we wouldn't have had an issue um, getting those players out on loan and potentially I, I don't think we would have had an issue finding permanence for, for the likes of Rudiger, um, Alonso, Emerson and some of that cash might have then helped us uh, you know, raise some money to, to bid for Rice. I still think there's a chance that we go back in for him in January if we can shift some of those players uh, in January. Um, and I think Barkley and uh, Ruben both going kind of give you a bit of an indication maybe about how Frank wants to play. With that kind of double pivot, um, I think you know you can see that we were a bit overloaded in that area. Uh, anyway, um, at, at times last season we were quite successful playing with a three-man midfield of one holder, but I think Frank's plan A seems to be to play with a quite a flexible um, double pivot. So um, I, th- I think they, they just wouldn't have they wouldn't have found enough games. Barkley and Loftus Cheek, I think, with uh, Havertz, obviously Mason Mount can play there. Uh, Ziet can play there, so we're we're quite we're quite well covered. We're well covered in all areas. I think it's we look as though we're potentially one or two away now, whereas at the start of the window it was a case of you looking at the squad and thinking, oh, this is you know we're we're about still probably four windows away, assuming that you know probably two big moves a window, but we've managed to kind of do everything in uh, in you know a lot of a lot of moves in one window that speeds up the process. So. I think uh, it's it's really positive, and um, I, and I don't think we should be too despondent about some of the players we couldn't move on because I think that was just generally a theme with with a lot of Premier League clubs. Yeah, before we do uh, maybe touch touch on those players who who might have left, um, I think it is important to sort of maybe spend a little bit more time on just how positive it, this window was. Like you said, we'll um, just like to ask both of you really, um, which player are you most excited about? that has come in through this window. I mean, there's an absolute wealth of options. Um, Grant, is it, does one stand out to you? I mean, you, you, it's, it's very rare that you see, I mean, world class is banded around far too often, but you, you've seen at least four or five like top class players, either season Champions League level players or or players that absolutely have the, the potential to to go to that level and beyond. Yeah, I said uh, in our first uh, our first episode that I think Verna is probably the one I'm most excited about uh, hit the, you know, hitting the ground running, which hasn't proven the case yet. Um, 
and I obviously had my reasons for that, you know, that he trained with us for a few weeks and um, just his speed, you know, coming to the Premier League and, and just being such a threat the way Vardy is or, you know, someone like Sonis, but he's obviously settled a bit slowly. I think I probably have him as the, most, the one I'm most excited about in the longer term or the medium term at least. I think Chilwell is the one that's going to settle the quickest. Premier League, obviously Premier League adapted. Uh, it's, it's a straightforward just to come in and left back, do the same thing he's been doing for Leicester. And I think if he stays fit, he'll probably be the most consistent. Um, but I think Werner is probably the one I'd say in the medium term, let's say six months from now or towards the yeah, towards end of the season and next season. I think Havertz is obviously extremely exciting, but uh, you know, 21 versus 24, Werner is probably slightly further away from his peak. Um, Mendy, of course, yes, because uh, you know anyone who can keep Kepa uh, in the stands or on the bench is, is going to be welcome. Um, I just think with that, you can understand why Lampard said Kepa on the bench for the last couple of games um, because he wants to, you know, save face for him in public and, you know, he's not gone down to number three. But I think he's kind of made a rod for his own back now because he kind of has to play Kepa this weekend if if Mendy's out. It's it's quite harsh to go, like, you know, to bring Caballero in from from the stands to start the game, even though he played the two games previously uh, before Mendy's two starts. So actually, it's been four games since Kepa played, so he's coming back in would be... It's probably not ideal, and I think Lampard's actually just made that into a problem for himself. Um, so, uh, yeah, Mendy being fit this weekend is, uh, is really a big deal. I'd be more keen for him to be fit if I had to choose between him, between him and Showell, just because I think, you know, James is right back, we can get through a game. But, uh, you know, we've had two starts for Kepa, two starts for Caballero, and two starts for Mendy in our six matches. Um, so we just we can't get any consistency there. So, yeah, Mendy, I probably... The yeah, most, uh, probably the most needed, I'd say. Yeah, that's right. I think, yeah, just any sort of, any sort of consistency is, is going to be appreciated and obviously um, valued very highly this season in comparison to what's come before. But yeah, I, I'd agree with Werner. I think it's very exciting to to see him almost. Um, prepare himself for a, a big tournament as well next, next summer for, for Germany. I think uh, he can really sort of consolidate himself as, as one of the best centre forwards in Europe um, this season for Chelsea. I think if he, he, like you said, he is pretty much in his prime now. Um, I'm, I'm very excited by Havertz, like, like you said, but I just think, um, yeah, it might take some time to see his true potential, but I'm just excited to see what we've, what we've, what we've, the glimpses we've seen at Leverkusen, I'd, I'd like to see a, a couple of uh, instances at Chelsea, just the variety of, of his play and his versatility. I'd like to see him at some point play as a false nine a bit more, but more getting involved with um, knockdowns and, and flick-ons that was um, apparent after the restart in the Bundesliga. Will, is there, um, are you taking this any, anywhere else? Or are you a, a big fan of the German lads and... Um, Pretty much it. Pretty much it, I guess. Um, yeah, Havertz for me. I, I find him a really interesting player. I, I really enjoyed watching him uh, quite closely in those Bundesliga games after uh, the restart. I just think he's he could be anything really. Um, I think you know. He's, I think it tells you how well-rounded he is that he's sort of been compared to Ozil and Balak, which are two obviously completely different players. But you can see shades of just lots of different players in him. Um, there's even kind of a little bit of uh, Lampard-esque kind of late runs into the box and, and sorting his feet out really well in the box like Frank used to and kind of finishing in his stride. 
um, great in the air. Uh, it's got this kind of really uh, over over long longer distances when he when he gets out of his stride he's really quick I, mean, I think he's just a, a fascinating player I think the ceiling is his ceiling is just so high that I'm really excited to see him for over the next kind of uh, three to five years if you know hopefully that's what we can we can get out of him um, and we can just see him develop he's, he's you know he's obviously tall as well if he can fill his frame out a little bit and adjust to the physical side of, of things in the Premier League I, I think he could be really um, you know, talk. You know, talking like one of the best sort of three to five players in the league, and 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 potentially one of the best players in the world. So, uh, I would say him. And um, and I, I really I've enjoyed watching Thiago Silva the last. Uh, I enjoyed watching him play against Palace. You know, just a player that I think we've all kind of admired massively uh, at the highest level for 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 lots of years. And it's it's always great to see a player like that play for Chelsea. I, I mentioned it as a little bit, uh, obviously different positions but when we signed Etu you know I was absolutely buzzing even though it's always the end of his career and he, he, he lost a fair bit of pace he's just a player that's just absolute you know world class and um, you know you, you see a little bit of that with Thiago Silva I know it's only Palace but you know just just a little moment the way he uses the ball sometimes and his positioning and just how he, he does everything um, with such ease I think uh, if we can protect him and um, and build the system for him a little bit at the back, which we we seemed like we we did against Palace, moving into the right and putting Aspi there. Uh, I think he could be a really really important player for us this season. Uh, one that we might have to rotate a bit, but uh, I think he could be uh, quite an important figure as well. Yeah, no doubt. I think you're right about Havertz. Is a, a bit of a mystique there. I think just um, I'd like to just see all the positions he's capable of playing for different scenarios against um, weaker sides, against top, top teams, Champions League, obviously, as well, just to kind of experience the whole package and, and what he's truly capable of. But I think you're right. Is, um, I mean, obviously, Chelsea have been blessed um, in the last decade or so with some truly elite players. And most recently, obviously, Eden Hazard, possibly the, the best of all. But I think you're right. Havertz can really elevate his game in the next year or two to put himself right up there as among the, the very best attacking midfielders. So I think that's really exciting. Um, but yeah, just to bring it back down, uh, bring the mood back down a bit. Uh, we, we talked uh, about deadline day and uh, the certain, the, the players that maybe didn't leave um, Grant. What were, what were your thoughts on Rudiger staying? Obviously, is he fifth choice? I mean, he's, he's still playing for Germany. Um, Kepper obviously hanging around we've mentioned Emerson hanging around seems like he's a, a reasonably good character but as proven against Tottenham can't really be relied upon um, yeah it's still a pretty um, a bulky squad isn't it I mean do, do you fear that it might be um, a negative this season given the the failure to shift a couple of times or is it are we sort of picking holes in what has been an unbelievable window you'd rather acquire all these top top players and and have to cope with a, a couple of slightly annoyed squad players or how, how do you see the the makeup of uh, the squad yeah i don't think it's ideal and i think if it was longer than 10 weeks until the window opens again i think there's a chance of some sort of mutiny happening because there's there's a decent chance that rudiger won't play a single match in until january um because it's hard to kind of you know roll back on your fifth choice center back being in one of the starting two 
even with Thiago Silva needing to be rotated, I mean, Brazil playing, I think, tomorrow night against Peru. So if he's playing in that match, maybe he doesn't play the weekend against Southampton and maybe tomorrow he plays or Christensen. You still can't see Rudiger even getting into the 18. So I think, I think maybe he can just sit tight and um, get himself a good move in January. But I think that type of, that type of character who's got a couple of other Germans in the dressing room is who's so tight with, uh, with someone like Kurt Zuma. That has potential to be a really like a real negative, and I think guys like Alonso, who you wouldn't expect to even be making traveling squads and just be, you know, staying at home for games, he's not going to be very happy for the next uh, couple of months either. Uh, Emerson seems like a reasonable, you know, quite char- you know, relatively good character. He hasn't played much in the last year anyway, and he's uh, hasn't caused any trouble. So, look, I think there is a chance of something on the you know off the field happening. Uh, you, you, I think January could be quite busy. I think we might actually have to actually like bring in someone just because we have to get rid of so many. If you think both left backs might leave, we, they may be a bit short suddenly for the rest of the season. If um, maybe Rudiger goes, maybe there's another centre back that's also agitating because he's not playing a lot. Uh, obviously, Will's mentioned a few times that keeping fours hap- four happy isn't very easy. There's the Nishiru as well. So um, I think we just have to kind of get through the next couple of months, even maybe. You know, just putting a couple of these guys somewhere into a squad, a few minutes there and there, just to keep them involved, keep them on side. Um, and then I think in January, we'll have kind of a bit of a clear out of those guys. I can understand why some of them stayed because uh, I think Alonso's performance against West Brom probably gave Lampard some second thoughts about offloading Emerson. And then it wasn't really sure, you know, how, who do we get rid of? Who do we keep? And I think also with Rudiger, there was talk that we try to get that new contract signed to actually loan him out. And you can understand we want that protection. Uh, we've done that with so many players in the past. Um, I mean, even Victor Moses or a Romeo, when he went to loan the first time, signed a new deal. It's just so common that um, at Chihuahua, obviously, that we, we actually wanted to protect our asset and he didn't want to do that. So fair use to him. I mean, why would anyone sign a new contract that ties you to the club where you're going to have to spend the next couple of years on loan, maybe? So I think it's really not ideal. And I think the, you know, people might think the Kepa decision is justified because now we have an injury. I just think that one should have been done no matter what. Because um, uh, no, we're talking about it again. Why You shouldn't be talking about the third choice goalkeeper or one of the three goalkeepers. It should just be kind of, kind of irrelevant, like not someone you ever think about unless there's injuries. So I think that isn't a slight negative. It's, hard for, it's going to be hard for Lampard to keep people happy. Um, I just think it's such an extraordinary season that the fact that we're like, you know, in, in mid-October already and not the 5th of August um, does help things. Yep, yeah, uh, I think it makes some good points there, there Grant. Will, I think just, just before we sort of switch it over to the, the Mendy interview, um, is there anything you, you want to add on the, the transfers? Uh, any slight negatives? Um, any impacts? I mean, one final thing I, I wanted to sort of mention was the the potential, in, the knock-on impact of some of these signings. I don't know if you guys sort of have noticed the the potential for for some of these um, these these arrivals to to affect the form or development of the existing squad members. I think Abraham is a fascinating case with with Werner's versatility to play left. I think Lampard's proven already that he's willing to play uh, Tammy as the as the nine. I think. Pretty much, I think there's no other English forward um, out there who who could be in more of a privileged position. I think if he can, if he can really prove himself and, and make sure that he earns his 
his starting role. I think you look at the talent that will be in and around him, especially when Havertz and Ziyech settle, Werner, and Werner too, but also when Pulisic is back and fully fit. I think you've got absolutely incredible um, potential there. I mean, it's going to be very hard to to not carry Kane or, uh, or potentially Rashford out of that team. But I think... Um, he can do himself a world of good if he if he can force his way in or keep himself in this team. Um, is there anybody else um, that sort of falls into that bracket? We've seen the detrimental side potentially with Hudson Odoi, but yeah, any any final thoughts? Um, yeah, well, I think I think just think Tammy's going to play a lot. I think uh, I think Werner, like you said, you've got the 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 plus of him playing wide, but I think what we saw from Pulisic last season. Uh, after the restart, how good he was. I, I think he is going to play a lot once he's up to speed. So then maybe that does hurt Tammy's minutes. Um, the, the problem is with the, the squad, all the wide players, all the players that are in Werner's case, the player that can play wide and up front, they've all got this, uh, they, they all prefer playing on the left. So there's a little bit of an issue there. We're maybe a little bit unbalanced in in that sense. Uh, Frank sort of spoke a little bit about how um, once everyone's fit, he knows exactly where he wants Werner and Havertz to play. Uh, and I think uh, Grant's t- touched on this previously that, you know, I think we, we probably assume that it's going to be Werner as the nine and, and Havertz as the 10, but um, maybe not. Maybe maybe he wants to play, um, you know, Werner and Pulisic both wide kind of and, and, and Tammy uh, uh, up there, or maybe he wants to play Havertz as a false nine and play him more withdrawn, a little bit like Liverpool's front three, and have lots of pace running in behind the false nine. I don't, I don't really know. I think uh, we'll have to see, but I, I think there's enough competitions, especially uh, leading up to January, where we can keep Tammy happy so he's not seeking a move. Um, I think it, it is a bit of an issue having, you know, being a bit overloaded at left back, centre back, goalkeeper, like like Grant touched on, but. Uh, as you also touched on, we, we're that little bit closer to January. I think it's, I think it's um, seventeen games or something, seventeen or eighteen games until January. So <laughs> that's you know, there's less time, but there is still quite a lot of games. So it will be interesting to see how it plays out because, like you said, you've got these experienced players that are going to be left out. It's 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 a little bit different if it's someone who's not used to playing and they have to sit out. Uh, a little bit like Emerson was last season. Um, he, you know, Alonso is used to being quite an important player for us in title-winning seasons. Uh, the same with Rudiger's been there for for trophy wins and stuff. So it, it will be tricky. I, I just I do wonder whether Rudiger might be kind of brought back into the rotation a little bit, just to keep him kind of located a little bit. Um, I agree. I think the goalkeeper issue is a bit of a mess, but you know our hands were tied with that. Um, and Kepa seems like quite up for the fight. Um, I don't think, you know, if Mendy's fit, I think Mendy's going to play. I think he's just a, a much better goalkeeper as we'll, as we'll get on to in a bit. Um, but, but yeah, it's interesting. I think we're, lots of, lots of, lots of uh, clubs are suffering from this issue, not being able to move players on. So everyone's going to be in a similar boat. But uh, it, it is, um, it's not ideal. But I think it's just, it's just you know, it's... it's it's the situation everyone's in at the moment with COVID. Um, and I, to be honest with you, I don't know whether it's going to be much easier to shift some of these players in January because I don't think clubs are going to, you know, somehow be in a better position financially where they can go and take players on loan for big wages or sign players. So 
Um, it just means that we've got a few months now to really work on work on these deals, which we may have left them a little bit too late because we were focusing quite a lot on bringing players in. So it's important now that all the attention goes into trying to find these players, new clubs. So then from January onwards, we're in a much clearer situation. Yeah, do you, um, Grant, I was going to touch on um, some of the, the rivals' business this summer. I think uh, it's important to sort of assess the, the lay of the land. I think it's fair to say most teams improved significantly. I think while Spurs, I agree, frankly, I don't think there's much of an argument to um, to put them number one when you rank the entire league. I did, I did, I did admire some of their business. I think uh, they they definitely addressed pretty much all their needs, um, namely even um, centre forward position when they brought in Vinicius on loan from Benfica. So, yeah, Mourinho got his way one way or another, despite a crushing blow of like COVID to to Tottenham's sort of um, their their main business model with that stadium and. Obviously, that had some effect on their their transfer fees. That said, they um they obviously spent spent plenty or they brought in plenty of names. I think Spurs definitely had a good window. I think Arsenal's business was pretty much salvaged. I think it's fair to say with with Thomas coming in um, on deadline day. Um, I did think Gabriel looked looked pretty good before the international break. I think that's that's pretty promising. Um, William too, obviously, but then. William almost blocks the development of a couple of their other players, so I, I don't, I don't quite know whether that is a, a net positive or not for them. Um, United seem to be the ones which have, have sort of lost ground, uh, in my opinion. Um, what, what do you think of the teams in and around Chelsea and and how they're they're competing this season? And has anybody lost noticeable ground or or, get, or even gained ground? I think none of us none of us agree that any have gained ground on Chelsea just because Chelsea have had the best window in, in all of our opinions. Yeah, I think, you know, Arsenal and Spurs are outside the top four and they've done pretty good business. I like the look of Gabriel um, in the middle of a back three. I think he's pretty strong, physically good in the air, not bad at playing out from the back. Um, I think you're right in William that, you know, with, with Pepe and Saka there, it does feel a bit like a luxury unless they do decide that they're going to switch back to a back four and William's either going to play as the number 10 or... Um, Young is going to move back up front so there's an extra spot in the front three for, for one of the others um, Party I love I think he's a brilliant player and obviously getting Ceballos back as well that's a pretty good midfield too there uh, certainly gives a lot more to you than Onani and Jacka would uh, in a pairing um, I think Party's going to be fundamental you know Arsenal have been for years they've been needing an actual defensive midfielder that can break a play but also actually offer something on the ball so I think he's a top signing I had a bit of a laugh at his dad apparently saying he was waiting for a bigger club to, to sign him with Juve and Chelsea linked. But anyway, aside from that, I think they've done a good window. Spurs obviously have had a great transfer window. I just think I'll slightly better if you look at who they actually got. I mean, Bale, if he hits any sort of level that he's shown in the past, a front three of Bale, Kane and Son is frightening. Um, with Possibly with Kane dropping off and playing those two in behind. Uh, could be quite interesting to see Bale and Kane fighting for shoot, you know, for shots from long range, and and seeing how that actually works out. Um, I think Hoiberg's a solid signing. It definitely gives them something that they needed. Uh, you know, Winks is steady player, uh, but Hoiberg's much better at breaking up player, um, much more of a hatchet man. Exactly what they need with a bit of you know that bite in the midfield. Obviously, they've got the two fullbacks, so probably both are slightly better suited to playing as wingbacks. So you know, Doty and and Reggiano are pretty decent signings. 
I don't think Hart or Vinicius are going to play a great deal, but I think it's a good window. Um, Liverpool obviously excellent with Thiago Cantara. Um, Diego, Diego Jota is a really good, you know, fourth attacker. City have had a weird window, I think. Um, they left with five centre-backs, but still a lot of question marks in that area. I mean, besides Laporte, you wouldn't be particularly trust, you know, trusting of any of the options there. Uh, Stones, don't have much faith in that. You know, uh, Bruno Diaz is also a bit of a, an unknown quantity, whether he does well or not. Um, I think left-back's an issue for them. I think you might see Aki playing there quite a lot. Um, United's also quite a strange one. They, they didn't get Jadon Sancho, which would have been massive to have him. And then, you know, the current front three as a four to rotate would have been really deadly. I think they look quite, they look quite poor in their game so far. Um, I'm not sure if Van der Beek is going to be what they need to actually fix that midfield. You know, Matic was great um, from January until the end of the, end of the, the restart, but with Pogba not quite up to speed, Fernandez not necessarily giving that much besides, you know, his killer passes, they seem a bit open. So I think they might have had the worst window and lost some ground. But I I'd say Chelsea the best Spurs next, uh, possibly possibly Liverpool after that and then Arsenal and then and then City and uh, and then United as they have had to rank the top six. Obviously I think Leicester and Everton have done good windows have done great business as well. Um, especially Everton, even with just three signings, they've changed their sights completely. So I think they could be pushing for that top top six as well. Yeah, I think um, I'd agree with that. I mean, obviously slightly outside the top six, but um, I think it's worth mentioning that we obviously we thought Villa's business. We've we've spoken on this podcast before about how we we think they've done pretty well. I think. Um, Matty Cash at right back. I think Ollie Watkins obviously has settled immediately. And uh, I think Barkley can contribute on loan there. Um, Everton naturally will be uh, will be praised for what they did. I think you look at someone like James Rodriguez, I think they rolled the dice and I think just making him happy, making sure he's fit, uh, settled into a team, given limited instructions. I think you just let his quality shine through. And I think Everton are reaping the rewards and, without European football, I think you look at them under Ancelotti and I think it wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility that they could certainly challenge for a top four position, I think, um, given they, they look like they're going to pick up a, a pretty healthy lead in the in the race to the, the size outside the top four at this stage. Um, and then lastly, I think in terms of business that impressed me, I think Sheffield United, I think it would have been easy for them to to go out and and maybe um, become besotted by these, uh, these these glamorous options that, that presented to themselves after finishing so strong last year. I think, no doubt, plenty of agents have offered their players to them, uh, given the, the purse strings were probably loosened somewhat after what what they achieved and knowing that they can they can live at this level. But I think, yeah, they they, they spent money quite uh, quite lavishly, but I think they did it in a in a smart way. You look at someone like Aaron Ramsdale, I think he, he was inconsistent at times for Bournemouth, but when you lose someone as good as Henderson, you want to address the position with the upside for now, but also with um, safeguarding your future a little bit. And they don't want to be chopping and changing keepers all the time. And he's a good young goalkeeper. And I think to add to that, you look at Rian Brewster and I think that, that, that could be a really um, exciting signing for them. So yeah, that, that was somebody I'd also um, 
I'd rate highly. And uh, obviously they, they added Ampadu on loan too. So I'm excited to see what Wilder can do with, with him in, in that um, quite unique setup they've got there. Yeah, I, uh, I would echo a lot of what you guys said. I think Spurs, Spurs have had a good window. I'd look at their squad the other day and it's... Jose always tries to kind of make these, uh, you know, little comments about how they, you know, we can't spend money and this and that. But all of a sudden he's, he's got a really deep squad there. You know, you've got quality, two players in every position. Um, so I don't think he's got much excuses, Jose, now. I think really that squad... That squad's there for at least top four, I think. Um, I think I could see Spurs sort of replacing United in the in the top four. I think United. It's just obviously they after restart they picked up a lot of points, but I think it it was a, it was very misleading. I think if you look at kind of their um, you know the chances they were creating and, and and the quality of the football, it wasn't actually very good. I think it was lots of set pieces and loads of penalties. Um, and any of that kind of good feeling, I think, and any kind of momentum that they might have had was sort of lost when they really just didn't do anything in the market. Obviously, Cavani came in late. Uh, remains to be seen, you know, how big an impact he'll have at his age. Um, if I was United, I wouldn't be too down on that signing because I think Cavani is potentially a, a player that can keep going. He's obviously physically really, really fit. Um, so, you know... I think if if it if he hadn't had all the the stuff before it, all the stuff about Sancho, and you just brought in Cavani earlier on in the window, you would have seen that as quite a solid, astute signing. Although they have paid a lot in agents fees, apparently. Um, but yeah, I think Arsenal have done some good pieces, but then I think their squad still needs a lot of work to be, um, you know, really challenging for the top four. But I think Arteta to me seems like a real good quite a pragmatic manager. I think uh, he's not quite playing that expansive football that I think he probably wants to play. But I think he's smart enough to sort of implement a system that, that can get him there. Um, and, and so I, I think Arsenal could be in the mix as well. It's going to be interesting. Uh, other clubs, I would say, I think Leicester have had another good window, you know, sold, um, sold Chilwell and bought in Fafana and Castagne, so it's two players that are you know competing for your first team and, and replace the player that's gone um, for for one player. So Leicester always seem to have a good window. To be fair, they're always just just a really well-run club. Um, Everton in the short term, short to medium term, I think have had a really good window. It's a lot of players kind of in their late twenties, early early thirties, but I think Everton fans will take a little bit of short-term success, maybe a cup run. Who knows, maybe even a top four challenge if they can keep it up. Um, so, yeah, I think their fans will be pleased. Um, Fulham, Fulham's interesting because I think, obviously, they've, they've looked so, uh, you know, miles off the level. But then, you know, towards the end of the window, they brought in Loftus-Cheek and Lookman, two players I, I really like. And I think, um, I think they'll still go down, but, you know, maybe they can go down playing some, some fun football, some exciting stuff. Be interesting to see if if uh, if any of those can kind of work out and give them a, a bump in quality. Um, but yeah, I think it's the Premier League clubs have been pretty active. Like I said, everyone else has all the other all the other uh, European countries seem to have been really quiet, uh, really sort of tighten the purse strings. But um, yeah, it was it was quite an interesting summer. I think the standout just again, I think was United not not going out and getting anyone. 
uh, of note. Uh, it is just, you know, how long is it going to be United to run this badly? It's just, it seems, it seems crazy. And I do feel, I do feel a bit sorry for Solskjaer because I, I think he's actually done a pretty good job um, to sort of lift the mood. I think he's been quite level-headed and pragmatic as well with the system that he's played, initially playing a back five and then playing that front three and kind of when Fernandez arrived, kind of building a role for him that gets the best out of him. Um, but yeah, I, I think he's, he's probably going to be the full guy when it goes wrong and, and then there'll be another manager. But I think ultimately it doesn't really matter. They can go through as many managers as they want. They can bring in Pochettino, but in, until they until they're properly run and they properly, you know, recruit well, they're not going to get back to the top for me. Yeah, I think that's a, that'll be a trend to, to follow with um, not just intrigue, but excitement almost from Chelsea's perspective, knowing that, yeah, uh, Solskjaer's rope is maybe not quite as long as uh, as it should be, um, given that he, he wanted Grealish, he wanted Upamecano, he wanted Sancho and, they failed to deliver really this summer for him once more. Um, I think, yeah, that's, that, that sort of like closes it on the transfers. Just a, a final note from all of us. I thought, do your expectations change now the window's shut? Now we know what Chelsea have. Um, personally, I still think third is within reach. I still think um, quarterfinals in the Champions League is is what you want to see. And while Carabao Cup is not no longer an option, I'd definitely like to see a um, a semi final slot if possible in the in the FA Cup, given the, the team's um, history there and the, the comfort that Lampard has already displayed in, in knockout ties. Um, so yeah, that's my final predictions. Um, Grant, anything to to add on that? Um, where you see the team going this season? Now you know what the squad is and what 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 Lampard has at his disposal. Yeah, I think I stick to that third place. Uh maybe another 10 or 12 points in last season, pushing towards 80 points or 75 to 80 points. Um, that was based on us getting a goalkeeper because all the work could have been undone without actually strengthening that area. So I think I'd stick with what I, what I said you know, in, our first, in our first episode. And you, Will? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go second. I think we're going to finish second. There you go. Uh, we usually just always agree with each other. I'm going to go a bit different. Uh, I think, I think uh, I th- I'm not impressed. I didn't talk about City. I'm, I'm, I really I don't fancy City this season. I think Pep's been there a while now. I think you're not seeing them press in the same way. You saw the drop-off last season. I think that will continue. They lost David Silva. Um, they lost Sane. They brought in Ferran Torres, who I haven't seen a lot of, but people tell me he's a little bit more of a functional winger. Um, and I guess Foden is sort of the replacement for Silva, um, but I think Foden's going to, you know, be up and down. I think he's a brilliant young player, maybe England's most exciting young player, but he'll be up and down, and I'm not really convinced by either of the centre-back signings, so I can see them kind of dropping off slightly again, or certainly not improving, and I, I think we can we can really, we can potentially have a massive uplift lifting points um you know it's it's not impossible that you get another 15 or so points I mean I think Liverpool did it when they when they made a couple of key signings um I think they went from 70 odd points up to 90 you know so it it, it can make a huge difference if you sign well um so I'll go with us second and 
semi-finals of the Champions League, win the FA Cup, uh, and uh, be a great season. Yep, that's uh, that sounds good. I think um, yeah, let's hopefully not um, come together at some point before Christmas with um, with it all ending in tears. Uh, I think the the result before the international break probably means it will uh, it will last a bit longer than that than that. No matter how how far it goes goes south from here. Um, yeah, that's it from from us this week. We we've now got a uh, an interview though that we we recorded before this with John Harrison from uh, goalkeeping intelligence and uh, part of the goalkeeper goalkeepers union podcast um you can follow john on on twitter at jhd harrison one um some really good insight on mendy um the sort of statistics that we need to to look out for um in the game when when assessing goalkeepers and some myths that we um we uh, we often regurgitate when when talking about their performances. So yeah, really enjoyed chatting to John, and uh, thanks to him for um, for coming on and having a chat. Enjoy. Hi, John. Uh, really uh, pleased to get you on and have a chat about goalkeeping in general. Um, obviously, your background uh, in um, with the Goalkeepers Union podcast and. Um, your contributions to goalkeeping intelligence. So we thought you'd be a perfect guest to uh, shed some light on the situation. Um, my first question really is is a general one. It's uh, concerning like the misconceptions that people have about goalkeepers in the mainstream. And I'm sure there's there's quite a lot of um, a lot of things that sort of irk you a little bit when you you listen to the coverage. But immediately, what is the one thing that stands out to you where? a lot of people get it wrong and they don't quite understand the concept of, of, of that particular part of goalkeeping. Yeah, no, no, cheers, cheers for having me on, lads. Um, so I think for me, the main one, well, there's probably about three big ones, which I'll quickly mention and then I'll discuss the, the, the main one. But the, the, the three big ones are probably uh, shouldn't get beaten at the near post, went with the wrong hand and the balls just hit him <laughs> or her, depending on what. Um, but the, the main one is the balls just hit them. For me, the sometimes this is true when the commentators or pundits or whoever they are are saying that. But a lot of the time, it's actually really good goalkeeping to either get out and spread in front of the striker and leave no gap, so all they could do is hit them. Um, or, or yeah, and and so I think that's probably the one that um, irks me the most, just because there's a nice little, there's a little bit of room there for where the commentator could praise the goalkeeper doing some really good preemptive, emptive decision-making basically before the shot even happens that made the save much easier for them. And I think a lot of the stuff I concentrate on on Twitter is about how um, basically the, the actions a goalkeeper does before a shot even happens can make their save much easier or much harder for themselves. And um, I think that's a really, a really crucial area of, of goalkeeping that isn't, isn't well understood, I don't think. Yeah, you um, you because you touched on that. I think it's it's worth bringing him up straight away. Is that Eduard Mendy, um, Chelsea's new goalkeeper, is somebody from the limited amount of time I've seen him at Rennes and um, his his very limited time already in a Chelsea shirt. Is that a lot of his um, a lot of his actions seem to be um, where the ball is almost like a magnet to him, and he doesn't even though he has an imposing frame, he doesn't seem to need to move too much um, in your opinion how much of that is to do with um sort of preparation and um, initial movements that, that the camera wouldn't necessarily pick up 
Yeah, so I think that the key things of, of, of Mendy, from, from, from what I've seen of him, he's got a really good set position. So the way where he positions his arms and feet before the shot happens it is, is really nice. It's really textbook. And um, basically he keeps his hands either out wide or out in front. So he can, he can go up, down, left, right, anywhere. And he keeps his feet in a position where he can utilize them to make a foot save or he can move them and make a diving save. And sometimes recently with, with certain other goalkeepers, you'll see them either getting their feet too narrow or too wide. And that means they, they, they can only make either a foot save or a diving save. They, they can't go either way, depending on the trajectory of the shot. And sometimes with goalkeepers, you'll see their set position, they're either too high or too low, or their, their hands are nowadays quite often too far behind them. And that, that was one of, the, one of the big issues with Kepa. And it got more exaggerated as his, as his form dipped. Because I, I think it's just a psychological thing that he, he was trying really hard. Um, but Kepa had this arm swing technique which people like Manuel Neuer and other goalkeepers have used successfully in the past. But Kepa's got really exaggerated to the point where his arms were almost like, were almost fully extended backwards behind his body as the shot was coming in. And what that meant was if it was anywhere like around head height in and around him, it, there's no time for his hands to actually physically come up and make the save. Um, so Mendy doesn't ha seem to have any problems like that with his set position. He seems to be sort of very comfortable, doesn't really get nervous when a shot's coming in and start making strange, exaggerated movements. So that's probably the main thing I've seen with, with Mendy that I thought um, was a promising sign for Chelsea. Yeah, well, well um, I know you were particularly interested in that, that aspect of the differences in technique between Mendy and, and Kepa. Yeah, I mean, I, I first uh, probably came across you, John, on, on Twitter, just... Um, on some of the work you've done on um, one one v one situations, um, which is obviously there's there's lots of there's lot well there's there's actually not I don't think that much um, data collected from from the like you know the kind of usual data providers on goalkeepers that's that interesting. So I found some of that stuff really really interesting. I think and I would say your your Twitter your Twitter account is probably one of my favorite one of my favorite Twitter accounts on on, yes. on Twitter. It's just so much stuff on there you know stuff that you focus on that I would just never think of um obviously I've worked in scouting and I think a lot of the scouts when, when I worked at Bristol Rovers a lot of it is just it's such a it, it can be such a poorly scouted position and a lot of the scouts we had would kind of you'd, you'd ask them about a goalkeeper and they'd always uh, qualify it with but I don't really know that much about goalkeepers you know, so so you kind of just leaning on goalkeeping coaches and things like that, and um, but yeah, I mean, if you just, I know you've kind of already touched on some of the some of the stuff one v one work, but I mean, who who are some of the, the the best keepers in the league for you, um, and maybe some of the keepers that have the most sort of interesting and effective techniques when coming off the line? Yeah, okay, so so yeah, regarding regarding one v ones, I'd say that up there, well, at least last year when the majority of the the data I've collected for. I'd say um, uh, Matty Ryan at Brighton is a really interesting one. So he uses the sort of De Gea style block thing, the sort of cricket long barrier, as, as English people would call it, um, to basically make there no gaps between the legs, no possibility of being chipped, just sort of set out in a sort of long barrier position. And this works really effectively from 1v1s at tight angles. And it just happened that last year, um, Brighton faced a lot of 1v1s from tight angles, I assume because their defence was built to, to, to funnel them that way and they didn't want to get broken down through the middle. And this meant Matty Ryan actually had the highest one-on-one -on -one save percentage in the Premier League. I think he had something of the order like 
65 to 70% of one-on-ones he saved. Um, because, yeah, he was just so effective at getting out, getting close to the striker, and then dropping into this long barrier. And just, there was no gap. So strikers would just try and smash it, and it just hit his body. They'd try and dink him. He was still stood up effectively, so he could just catch it. Um, he was he was really effective. And the other part of his game that was really good, as well as the execution of the block technique, um, was he was really good at waiting deep on his line. There was a really good example against Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Aubameyang last year, where basically they're, they're, and I can actually contrast this with, with a goal against Chelsea, actually. So um, so they were running in clean through. There was defenders chasing them, and they got to maybe a few yards outside the box, and the defenders were closing in because naturally a striker will slow down when they get close to the box because they need to set themselves for the shot. And rather than like rushing to maybe his penalty spot, Matty Ryan just stayed on his like three or four yards off his line just inside his six-yard box and was like, beat me with a shot. It's a shot from outside the box at the end of the day. It doesn't matter that there's not no players between us. And both of them, Dominic Cavalier and Alabamian, then hit a shot from just outside the box um, into the bottom corner. And he just had enough time to react, tip it around the post both times. And a, a, another example I could give to show that not all keepers are, I'd say, confident enough in their decision-making to do that was um, the uh, Martinelli-Arsenal goal against Chelsea. So Martinelli effectively run the length of the pitch, Kante, Zuma, all the people just falling over left, right and centre. And, and he gets to the edge of the box, but, but Kepa's like past the penalty spot at this point. So he's like, oh God, I'm only, whatever, 10 yards or less away from Martinelli. I'm not going to be able to react in time. So he just picks away and dives and he chooses, I think, to dive to his right. Martinelli rolls it in the left and it's, Realistically, it's a goal that's gone in that's like 40 miles an hour from the edge of the box. And like, if Kepa just stays in his line, he just catches that. Or Martinelli has to do a different finish. Um, so I think that's that, that's one of the aspects that I really like Matty Ryan as a 1v1 goalkeeper. And he's pretty, quite an unsung hero for me because he's really good when they're close one-on-ones at angles because of his block technique. But also he doesn't panic when there's these sort of long-range one-on-ones that I call them, where strikers are running for like 10 or 15 yards. It's, it's interesting you mention... Um... Matty Ryan, because he's probably he's probably one of the smallest starting goalkeepers in the league, if not the smallest. Um, and I know I'm probably guilty of this, and I know certainly with Mendy, um, maybe some of the fans and, and sort of uh, pundits have been a little bit guilty of kind of fetish, fetishizing his his size and his six foot six, and we sort of automatically assume size is a, is a huge factor in, um, you know potentially there's, there's always a trade-off there. And if you've got a average massive keeper, it's always better than to have, you know, size size in your favour. I mean, do you think, what what's your view on, on on the size of a goalkeeper? Does it matter? Um, you know, is, is it worth the trade-off having a smaller keeper that can potentially get down lower? Uh, you know, what, what's your view on that? Yeah, so I basically think we're not yet at the stage where sort of goalkeepers are all robotic enough that you can never really do a direct trade-off, I don't think. So personally, for me, for me if I was thinking, if you, the, the smaller keepers normally are actually generally better shot stoppers because to become a professional goalkeeper, only being six foot or six foot one, you, you, to get to that level, you have to be better. So they just are more agile. So they still cover a similar amount of the goals to the bigger goalkeepers. But obviously, if you've got a super, super agile, tall goalkeeper, then you, you, you would imagine that was going to be that was going to be beneficial. But for me, I don't think we've really reached a stage where all the goalkeepers are at such a level that, that height makes a huge difference. Because, yeah, for, for me personally, I'd say if, if we do ever get there, 
the, your sort of optimum height is probably going to be six foot three, six foot four, because then you're not too tall that you struggle when the ball's hit in and around your feet. Um, Courtois, for example, other basically all tall keepers are going to struggle when the ball's hitting around their feet just because it's, it's harder to get them, uh, readjust them and, 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 and move them around. But then you can still claim a lot of crosses. You can still get to the top corner. So th there is obviously a, a trade-off. So I'd imagine, yeah, uh, you see most Premier League goalkeepers average probably about six foot four. You have some that are up to six, seven, some that are as small as six foot. Um, but yeah, I don't think, I, I don't think it's a massive factor at the moment. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a good, uh, the, the thing with Mendy is he, he's not just big, he's also really, really good at actually goalkeeping. So he's really good at claiming crosses, really good at sweeping up and really good at shot stopping. So um, his height is potentially part of the reason why, but I don't think it's uh, like, it's very easy to be a very tall keeper and not be that good. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think we'd be, uh, sorry, just quickly. I, I yeah. think with Mendy, it's just, it's strange his kind of career path and it's sort of taken him this long to get to kind of the Champions League sort of level. Um, and I think if it was, if, it, if he was a sort of 23, 24 year old keeper, I think based on that, everyone would be really, really kind of excited. And, and, um, and obviously I think his feet would probably be a lot higher. Um, but yeah, just, just getting directly onto Mendy. I mean, where where do you where do you think first of all where do you think he kind of at this stage sort of stacks up against the the, the rest of the sort of elite keepers in the league and and also um, I mean I guess we can do a direct comparison with Kepa but I can kind of probably guess which way that's probably, <laughs> probably going to go. Yeah. So uh, re regarding where I think so yeah Mendy I think he's yeah um, basically coming to his peak as a goalkeeper. Um, Hopefully, you'd imagine for Chelsea, his next couple of years are going to be his his best years. And um, yeah, so he's if we're just looking at the at the stats uh, when we look at expected goals on target saved versus the average goalkeeper, he's saved about over for for Rennie, he saved two goals more than the average goalkeeper will be expected to. So if we compare that across the Premier League, you're looking at probably like yeah a top eight top eight shot stopper in the Premier League. So pretty decent, not like not setting your world on fire like maybe Dean Henderson last last year or Allison or, or various people like um, that at Larice always over the over the past few years, but he's still going to be an above average shot stopper, um, which realistically, without doing the full direct comparison to Kepa, um, given the last few years' performances from Kepa, where he was actually basically the worst goalkeeper in the league in terms of expected goals on target saved. He was costing Chelsea goals. Not He wasn't average. He was like, yeah, 10 goals below average a season. So just getting a keeper that's a little bit above average in terms of shot stopping is going to make a big difference. Um, so, yeah, I don't think he has to be a, a world-beater in that regard. But I think where he is a world-beater, staying on, staying on Mendy, is, is at claiming crosses. So if you just look at... So I've, I've got statistics on all the, all the big six goalkeepers um, for this. And if you directly, it's obviously a risky business, but if you can keep up his form in uh, Ligue 1 and translate it directly across to the, to the Premier League, last year he would have been the best cross-claimer out of Edison, Edison Allison, uh, Lloris, Leno, um, yeah, uh, Kepa. Um, because, yeah, he basically he prevented 1.9 chances per game which corresponded to an expected goals of 0.32. So basically every three games, his crossing was saving uh, Ren a goal. 
So, uh, and in comparison, someone like someone like Kepa, he was coming for enough crosses that he'd maybe save a goal every ten games. So it's quite it's, it's quite a big difference, and it's something that will really help Chelsea, especially given their sort of set piece struggles over the last few years since since Courtois left. It's going to be a big thing because yeah, one of my um, tweets that I think quite a lot of Chelsea Twitter saw was about um, Kepa not actually coming and catching a corner last season. Um, he came four times, punched two successfully, punched one into the danger zone, and then he missed that one against West Ham that got that got headed in. Uh, where, whereas no, Mendy's coming for yes, yeah, I think he came for sixteen corners last year and caught like nine of them. So it's going to be a it's going to be a big help to, to to Chelsea, and I think that's the he's going to be an above average shot stopper if he can keep up his his form, um, which will be a help. But the, the main help will just be yeah, marshalling that box. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, John, um, in terms of the variety of statistics that you, um, you've you outlined there with different goalkeepers in the top six. Um, we, we get drip-fed statistics with goalkeepers um, sort of when, when when they're in fashion or perhaps when they're in a crisis. Um, we've seen Kepa's statistics almost um, hammered home and a lot of them sort of had him as last in the league or um, last amongst uh, starting goalkeepers I think some very simple statistics i.e um, save percentage he was he was right down the bottom um, for last season I think um, I've got down here for last season 0. 0.545 percent um, of, his, of for the saves whereas that would have put him like 21st of the qualifying um, goalkeepers but then on the other hand you mentioned uh, crosses which I think is a it's almost like a, an underrated um, aspect of a keeper because you there's an assumption that they should claim more, whereas a matter of fact, obviously, they, it's impossible to claim more. And you've just outlined nine out of sixteen for for Mendy is is an outstanding rate ratio. Um, in terms of what you look look for statistically to cross reference with um, the technical aspect when you you break down film and what strikes you as a, the more important element statistically of goalkeepers. Yeah, so I think you're, you're definitely correct in that, um, well, actually, we could sort of go, well, a few years ago, there wasn't actually really any good statistics on, on, on goalkeeping out there in the public. It was just save percentage. And save percentage tells you a lot of the story, and and, and it did for Kepa, um, because when it's really, really good, you know the goalkeeper's playing well, and when it's really, really bad, you know the goalkeeper's doing pretty poorly. But the, the problem is, um, until the expected save percentage metric was was first sort of put out into the public, which as a, as, as a quick summary is basically, depending on the location of the shot, the, uh, the speed of the shot, uh, where it goes in the goal, if it's a header or, or with the foot, or if it's a volley, there's various different criteria based on, on, on the shot and, and how it was built up. You can get a, how many times would you expect the average goalkeeper to save that shot? And until that was um, fully sort of outlined and put in the public forum, there was no really good statistics in anywhere for goalkeepers. But now that's really useful and it's shown us um, that actually goalkeeper save percentage, the expected save percentage can vary between anything from about 65 to 75%. So if a goalkeeper is putting in numbers in that range, you actually don't know if they're good or average. You actually need to use expected save percentage. Um, but for keepers who are doing really well, like I think a few years ago when Alisson had like a 90 odd save percentage, yes, he's definitely outperforming his expected saves. Uh, and then Kepa this year at 55% or whatever it is, he's definitely underperforming. Um, but I think now we have expected saves, that's a really good, a really good metric to use for goalkeepers. Um, and the, and the, 
the one other, the area to sort of answer your question, I think that at the moment is the most sort of undervalued and under, under probed is, is cross-claiming and sweeping. So on Twitter, I do quite a few things where I've built my own basically like cross-claiming and sweeping up through balls model just to try and basically have a look at it because no one's really tried to quantify it before, at least publicly. Potentially people have behind the scenes at different clubs, but publicly no, no one has. So I think that's the that's the area at the moment I'm concentrating most on. Hence, it was uh, it's a really nice thing to compare Kepper and Mendy because they're quite an interesting set of keepers on yeah how many crosses they claim and how worthwhile those crosses are for their team. Yeah, and the um, just lastly on the statistical aspect of assessing goalkeepers, um, how much variance do you f find in your the limited like seasons that you've so far had your model? Um, because last season, I think Nick Pope had the highest um, uh, cross claim claiming of crosses at like fourteen percent, which um, I think was about four percent more than Ben Foster. Um, is that a sustainable uh, way of looking at goalkeepers? Is is that just Nick Pope is just excelling so much at that particular aspect of goalkeeping or does that have a, a high variance? And the second part of that question is, what would you look, look to marry with that particular aspect of goalkeeping, i.e. cross claims, um, to make sure that this is a complete goalkeeper and somebody like Nick Pope that maybe has stopped the, the, the big, big clubs coming to, to sign him? Yeah, so I'd, I'd say the first thing, um, th th there will be a, there will be variance in the sort of number of crosses gone into the box versus the number of crosses they actually claimed, um, and I think Statsbomb do have a an expected claims model, um, which is really useful, but it's currently not public, so we so we we we, we can't um, we, we yeah the, the general public can't have a look at can't have a look at that and use that, and and, and the model I've done is basically just looking at the actual expected goals prevented from the crosses they do claim. So potentially it can be affected by the, the number of crosses that have gone into the box. So in the future, I definitely want to um, build a full expected number of sweeps and expected number of crosses claimed to then compare. Because at the moment, I just directly compare um, the goalkeepers, assuming they have a similar, uh, a similar um, amount of crosses that they could have ever claimed. But obviously, at the sort of granular small sample size level, you'd expect that not to be the case because a team, yeah, maybe Crystal Path didn't have a single cross on Saturday or whenever it was. So you can't expect Mendy to claim uh, claim a cross then. But hopefully on a full season sample size, it does even out somewhat. Um, and regarding Pope, no, he is literally one of the best. He's aerially very dominant and he's also very clean, um, as in he rarely drops the ball or fumbles the ball. That's the main reason I, I built my model, because I wanted to show that some keepers that people sort of view as erratic or cost their team a lot like Larissa and Leno actually the good they do by coming for so many crosses even though they screw up four or five a season over the course of the season them coming for 50 odd crosses versus Kepper not really screwing up any crosses Kepper and De Gea were the two I was comparing it to so it was if they're just staying on the line and only come for 20 crosses a season but they never drop one or fumble one um, is that better than um, Larissa and Leno coming for 50 or 60 crosses but five of them they miss the ball and it has to be cleared off the line or it goes in or whatever and, and i found that actually it's better to be a, a proactive keeper um it's very i haven't currently found a keeper that comes for so much and messes it up so badly that it's actually worse than just than just staying on the line um yeah and i guess that i guess the last point is 
there is three areas of goalkeeping. To, to, to me, I think basically every action can be categorized as, as one of three things. It's either saving a shot, it's either preventing a shot from ever happening, so that's claiming across, sweeping up a through ball, whatever, or it's distributing the ball. So you already have the ball and you need to play it to a teammate. And I think in, increasingly it feels that all three of them are of similar importance. I think shot stopping will almost always be the most important. And I think intercepting, uh, shot prevention, whatever you want to call it, it will be a, a close second. But I think now the amount of time a goalkeeper spends on the ball, them not sort of detrimenting you. Because I think it's, it's great to have a distributor like Edison who can ping it 70 yards to someone's feet. But actually, I feel it's more important to have a goalkeeper who can receive it under pressure, which Edison obviously can also do, um, receive it under pressure and just play the short passing, beat the pressure. Because it feels like at the moment, the way goalkeeping's going, um, one of the most important things is just to be comfortable with your feet and make sure you're, you basically facilitate your team playing rather than having to ping worldy passes left, right and centre. If you're good enough to just take a back pass under pressure, play it out wide, keep the possession, I think that's actually very important for most of the, most of the big teams these days. Yeah, I, just to finish on um, the distribution side of it with, with Mendy, um, like, like Jack said, it's obviously we're working on a very small sample size of games. But for me, he, he's looked in the first couple of games relatively good with his feet. Um, there's a, a few examples of nice sort of clip passes into the middle of midfield and clip passes out wide to the fullback. And, and, and he looks pretty reliable in his short distribution. His first touch is quite good. Um, do you have any any kind of statistics on 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 that side of his game and, and where that might stack up against uh, against Kepa? Yeah, yeah. So um, I was having a look at that today. I was just going through. I basically watched a load of his distributing actions and and also just went through some stats I had um, uh, of him anyway. Um, and I'd, I'd agree with that. I didn't realize really with, without um, spending some time with the with the video uh, actually how good he, how comfortable he was with his feet. So the statistics I've got here, um, I've got a really simple model that basically bins passes into long, mid-range and short. So the shorter, less than 25 yards, mid-range is uh, 40 to 25 yards. So they're like the little clips out into the fullbacks. Um, um, and then the long range is 40 plus yards. So they're like the driven goal kicks up to your, your centre forward sort of. And the interesting thing is, if you look at short pass completion, um, you, you, you can basically... Um, build a simple expected passes model based on the distance of the of the passes um, and Mendy comes out as plus one percent so his pass completion last year was one percent higher than an average goalkeeper Kepa was plus 0.1 percent so they're, they're both above average but Mendy seems to be more comfortable playing the short passes at least last year in in France which might not necessarily perfectly translate um, and then this was the one area I found looking through all my statistics where Kepa um, outperformed uh, Mendy and that was only slightly and that was in the mid-range distribution but I think Kepa has proven that he's actually really good at doing that and he always was for Chelsea so Kepa's mid-range completion minus expected completion is plus two percent um, and Mendy's is plus 1.74 so there's not much in it but yeah Kepa's basically the, the one area he was really good at Chelsea was just receiving it and clipping it into fullbacks accurately and beating the pressure that way and then the, the, the big surprise, the sort of last bin, so Kepper was um, plus 1.3% was his pass completion over 40 yards, so slightly better than, than average. Um, but Mendy here was plus 8.3%. So this actually ranked him 
last year in the European Big Five leagues, only Edison, Allison, Testegen, Neuer, and um, and Rulli of Villarreal actually could 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 beat that. So his long distribution is is up there. I th- even I was saying before, uh, you don't need a keeper who can ping it seventy yards to someone's feet. It does seem that that Mendy does have that in his in his locker because at least last year he was putting up really really good uh, long distribution numbers. So I think that's something that might be quite exciting for Chelsea um, because I, I I feel yeah Kepa was becoming a bit of an issue just because his confidence had taken a, a hammering. There's potentially a decent goalkeeper in there, but everything was just I think it was just getting a bit too much. And it feels like Mendy, the goalkeeper that's come in, he should be an above-average shot stopper. He's a top-class cross-claimer and he's, he's above-average with his feet as well. Um, so it feels like, on paper at least, if he can translate his league unform into the Premier League, he should actually, he could be a huge signing for Chelsea because it should, it should iron out a few of the issues that, that crept in last season. Well, you've got me feeling, you've got me feeling very positive now. I'm uh... <laughs> Please, we had you on. <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely brilliant, John. I think um, really revealing was yeah, just the, the long distance passing. I think is is something I think Chelsea could could maybe use as a bit of a weapon. I think you you look at the the speed from someone like Werner, I think into channels if he can maybe Lampard can lean on that a little bit. And I think you're right. I just think maybe everybody assumes the um, the, the way that the ball sort of gravitates towards his body is is almost by chance or just through his just nature. But actually, yeah, it's really interesting to look at what he's doing um, in the build-up to that. Um, thanks so much for giving us a bit of your time, John. Um, we can obviously um, follow you at, on Twitter at uh, jhdharrison1. Um, where else can people find your work? Yeah, so other than... Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been, it's been great. But yeah, other, other than on Twitter, I do try and post everything on there. But also... Um, on the Goalkeepers Union Twitter and on their podcast, I uh, I put articles and, and things up there and um, on, on the Goalkeeper Intelligence website as well. I try and always do a little bit of a Twitter thread summary of any article I do and then link it at the bottom if you want to read the full thing. So, um, yeah, you can find me there. Brilliant. Yeah, I'd, I'd um, recommend anyone listening. That's um, an essential follow throughout the season. So, um, yeah, once again, thanks so much for your, your time and um, be brilliant to sort of... Um, get your thoughts maybe later in the season as to the progress of Mendy and um, maybe where, where we see some of the other keepers. Yeah. yeah cheers boys. Yeah. I'd love to. Cheers. John. Thank you. Cheers.